Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. Happy New Year! You can't just give up. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Lee Smith. Lee has edited such amazing films as The Truman Show, Fearless, Master and Commander, for which he was nominated for the Eddie and Oscar. Inception, for which he was nominated for the Eddie, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, for which he was nominated for the BAFTA, the Eddie, and the Oscar, Spectre, Dunkirk, for which he was nominated for the BAFTA and won the Eddie and the Oscar, and 1917. Now he's crafted the beautiful, moving film, Empire of Light. Lee, it's so great to talk to you today. I just loved Empire of Light. I thought you did a fantastic job, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it today. Well, it's very nice to be here. So this is your third film with Sam Mendes. Can you talk to me about uh, Sam's process in the editing room and how this project is different from 1917? The process is just kind of evolving as we work together. We are in sort of a great place between a director and an editor at the moment as far as shorthand goes. The interesting thing with, say, 1917, which was different to any other film I've ever edited because of its completely invisible editing approach, was the role of the editor really came down to scrutinizing each day's dailies and then picking the take I liked. And then I would speak to Sam on the set and maybe he's picked another take and we would discuss the two just before they started rolling the cameras because the effective join on was different between each take slightly. Mm. So it was really kind of critical that you're on the same page and the choices that were being made were correct. And that was a process that I hadn't gone through before, even though editing on feature films, it's your job as an editor to scrutinize the dailies, cut them together, try to stay up with camera and alert the director if you think there's a problem. But what I noticed with Sam is not all directors want a lot of interaction while they're shooting. Of course, they all want to know if there's a calamity, but Sam likes to see the cut on a daily basis, which a lot of directors don't want to see sure, because they're trying to prepare and concentrate for the next day's work. But Sam and I have got this rhythm now, whereas I cut the material, put music to it, track it, whatever I need to do to make it work, send it back to him. So he's basically watching his film being built the same way that I am. The dailies from the day before, or are you getting video tap from what they're shooting? It's normally the day before, unless there's some kind of crisis that, you know, you'd be taking a video tap. But I think we only did that one or two times on 1917, simply because of the impossibility of shooting it again if it wasn't working. Sure. But the beauty of that is if you get it and you cut it, send it back to the director that night, you have this wonderful way of gauging 
the performance is engaging, how it's going. And Sam's never fearful of doing something again if something could be better. Not that it happens that often. Both 1917 and Empire of Light, by the time Sam finished shooting, we actually had a complete film. Wow. Is he giving you notes on that on a daily basis or is he sort of just looking at it to sort of gauge where he's at? No, he's giving notes and we're discussing ways of refining it and making it better. And if it's working like at 90%, he just say, no, that's great. We can tune it up later. But when he's got a little bit more time, he'd be giving me more detailed notes. And are you addressing those at the same time as you're trying to keep up on a daily basis or? Oh, you bet. I'm sending everything back on a daily basis, including the new material, plus anything else with the notes that have come. So we're really, at the end of every week, we're as updated as we could possibly be. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, you've got to have your wits about you. (laughs) And that's how it goes. Sure. It's It's a great process. What you end up with in post is a really good version of the first cut of the film where nothing's a surprise to Sam because he's been watching it the whole time. Yeah, which I could see is very useful. What were the specific challenges with this particular film? I think mainly just keeping an eye on the tone and the rhythm of the film. It was always going to be a slower paced film, maybe more than what I'm used to more of a character study, just making sure all those tones and rhythms were coming through. So you weren't trying to sort of really do a compacted version as you do with bigger sort of summer blockbuster films where you're going to have to jam a lot of material into that time frame and you'll be forever tightening and tightening and tightening. This one was a little bit the reverse where you were just letting it have its moments and let it breathe. And that was a really nice experience for me. Absolutely. And I think Olivia Coleman is so amazing in the movie. And when you speak about tone, she sometimes turns on a dime because of her mental state. She's fixing a broken wing with a pigeon. And it's such a beautiful, very gentle scene between her and Stephen. And then the next scene, she's screaming at him for making fun of the patron or at the beach They're having such a wonderful time building a sandcastle. He says one question that sparks anger and she changes. And so keeping that real can be a challenge, I would think, editorially. Yeah, yeah. Again, a lot to do with the rhythm of the cutting and the pace of matching her energy and basically her mood shifts. But as you noted, she's just such a brilliant actress that it was kind of, I don't want to say effortless on my part, but (laughs) I was spoiled for choice. And the performances truly were so good in this film that you were always feeling it was very incumbent on you to make sure you did the most perfect job possible because the actors were certainly doing that for you. But her turning on a dime was just so amazing. Every time you look at Olivia Coleman, everything is going on in her eyes and her face and her reactions. Yes. And from an editing point of view, that is what you live for, is that kind of thing. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> you sit there and go, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. I was amazed watching her. 
I mean, I knew she was good. We all know she's a great actress, but until you actually edit a film that she's been in and you just realize just how good and how much warmth and character and all those nuances dialing it up and down just minute percentage points can make such a difference to a scene and she's a master that's for sure Mm -hmm. and then as far as letting things breathe how do you know how long to hold things and keep the pace moving i sort of align it to music there's a rhythm in my head and i don't know where it comes from but i watch a shot And then there's a little internal voice just says, that's enough of that. And then you move on to the next moment. So you're feeling it. Yeah, it's like, you know, without trying to sound pretentious, it's like someone playing a musical instrument. When you're used to playing it, you don't think about it. I literally don't Mm -hmm. think about it. And yet, if I'm working on someone else's film, maybe to lend a hand or to recut it or whatever, It's fascinating to me because I'm watching it and my cut rhythms are different. I look at it and go, that shot's way too long. That shot's way too short. There is just an internal rhythm in my head. It's almost impossible to define because if you think about it too much, you probably won't do it. (laughs) Yeah. I think editing is very close to music in a lot of ways. So you have to think in a rhythmic type of way when you're cutting. Well, very much when you look at a scene or on a timeline. In fact, I'm staring at a timeline right now. You can see the rhythm of the cuts. And Mm. when you play a scene, if I think a shot is too long, you can actually look at the timeline and go, oh yeah, I can see it's too long. It's just, it stands out all of a sudden Mm. as incorrect. Now that's kind of crazy because obviously each shot inherently has its own information and it can be incredibly detail-oriented, or it can be a simple shot. And depending on what mood and what effect you want as to how long you hold it. So there's a million ways to cut a shot, but only one right one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I know that there's certain shots that you hold quite a long time on, like when Stephen is learning about Hillary having gone to the hospital, you hold on that one side shot for quite a while because I think you're really trying to get into Stephen's head. Yeah, it was an interesting scene that you know, that is an unusual thing for me to ever do. Mm. But when I put it together the first time, every time I put a cut in, I kept going, and I say this to people who are learning editing, it's like you have to have a reason to cut. Like don't just cut because you're bored. Is there a dramatic reason? What are you getting out of the edit when you put that edit in? Every edit has to earn its keep. And on that particular scene, it was the way it was framed. It was the way it was constructed. Sam wasn't constructing it to stay as long as I did in that one shot. But it was a very particular shot. You got all the information you required. And the reverse of that shot, which I only cut to once at the end of the scene, had none of what looking the other way had. Mm. just realized that I got so much more out of seeing Neil talking in profile but looking at Stephen's reaction that I didn't ever need to swing around until the very end. It was the last thing because it was to change the dynamic of how that scene ended and give punctuation to it. Every time we'd watch it in a screening, I kept wondering if Sam's ever going to say, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) 
but he never did. And we never changed that scene. It, it just felt so good and so right. And again, it's every shot has an emotional impact on you when you watch it. And that I can't get around. And for whatever reason, I was just completely glued to that angle. Me too. And so I just point blank decided, yeah, I'm not cutting. <laughs> I'm not cutting. And that proved itself in that film several times where you'd hold longer than normal. Well, when I say normal, probably my normal rhythm pattern of cutting. But again, that's putting too much thought into it. It just always felt right to me. So I never argued with myself on that point. Yeah, and I noticed that there is a different pace when Hillary's got more desperation, more sadness, more depression. And then when she's happy, it seemed like the rhythm and the pattern of cutting increased as she changed her personality and her tone. Yeah, exactly. Really, the cutting is dictated by the performance and by the scene and by the energy and Interestingly, there were some pickups done with energy level changes. And even though when you watch the dailies, like, say, a week apart, it's almost difficult to notice. And then when I started using it, I couldn't combine the two shoots because the energy level, even though it seemed imperceptible, <laughs> they wouldn't cut together. It was just like mm. two different people. But it was a surprise to me because I thought I can still get out of the scene the same way. I can still enter the scene and was like, nope, none of that works. <laughs> She's like two different people. <laughs> but that's, you know, again, that's just stuff you learn as you go. Sure. That's just the fascinating part of it. That's one of the joys of editing, I think. Each project is fresh and new. You're constantly learning. You're constantly challenging yourself. And each scene has different challenges. Totally. I was saying that to someone else. I've been doing it a very long time, and my goodness, every single job is almost new again. It's like you you really don't sort of go, ah, oh, I've done this before. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre. There are obviously things that you learn that you can apply to everything, and that's really great because that's a lot of bandwidth that I don't, as I said, I liken it to picking up a guitar or playing a piano people with great experience certainly don't think about the process. They just do it. And that's what I like about where I'm at is I'm not really thinking about all the mechanics. Now I can concentrate solely on performance, story, entertainment level, pacing. That's the thing that fascinates me the most. And also just a film as a whole as opposed to little tiny sections, just continuously thinking about the, the film and its total length and how that presents itself. Because I think we've all seen a 90-minute film that feels like it's two hours long and a two-hour film that feels like it's 60 minutes long. It just depends on the rhythms and the story and the performance as to how engaged you are. Sure, and if you understand what's going on inside the characters' heads. Yeah, exactly. You're just vested. It's funny with Empire of Light, when I was getting the first dailies and looking at all the other characters in the theatre that work alongside Olivia, you're just sort of looking at them as, oh, they're kind of like strangely interesting, quirky people. And by the end of the film, I just wanted to go on a holiday with all of them. <laughs> just adorable. <laughs> 
Support comes from Searchlight Pictures presenting the new film, Empire of Light, written and directed by Academy Award winner Sam Mendez, and starring Olivia Coleman, Michael Ward, Toby Jones, and Colin Firth. Set in a cinema palace in an English seaside town, an unlikely friendship sparks a hopeful and poignant journey about love, belonging, and the power of human connection. Now playing in select theaters. All of the scenes with Norman up in his projection booth oh my God. just have this magical quality to them. Yeah. Uh, and I love the way that he describes what film is all about. Oh, they were the best. Sam always laughed at me because he just said, boy, you can tell how much you love those scenes because <laughs> you crafted them with such, you know, reverence and care and everything. And I said, yeah, because it feels like that's my entire world and my entire youth, even though I didn't spend that much time in a projection booth. When I think about it, every film I worked on when I was young ended up in a projection booth and there was me standing next to a projectionist handing him the reels and talking about the film, be it on a dub stage or be it at a premiere or be it at a test screening. I always found myself inside a projection booth and your life almost is in the hands of the guy in the little grey coat because Mm -hmm. everything you've just put into your world is now in his hands. You just want it to go well and you want them to be interested and you want them to care about the focus and the sound and you want them to love movies. And, you know, we've all met Normans in various forms. Sure. All those scenes just gave me a warm and toasty feeling. (laughs) But they did for all of us. All of us with a lot of vintage on us were just going, oh, my God, this is just, you could swim in this stuff. It was just wonderful. And the look on Stephen's face when he's looking through the window. Well, that's the thing. The, the point of view, having it told from Stephen's face is, yeah. is really powerful. Because you, as an audience, see it through his eyes. Yeah. And I think the thing that surprised all of us was when Olivia goes to watch a film for the first time, the care that Norman was taking and him watching her watching the film, it was mm. so amazingly wonderful and also the choices that sam made of all the films and i said dude this is just such a walk down memory lane for me all the music all the films were right from my youth and i probably was not far off of stephen's age when all those were playing it was just yeah so cool speaking of that when you had the dylan or the Joni mitchell or the uh, cat stevens were those songs in the script How did that work? The Dylan song was always in there. The Joni Mitchell song came to us later in the post period, but the songs were all in the script that music would play at these points, and they were all this kind of music. So Sam had carefully thought about what he was going to try and do with these particular songs. But of course, you know, we couldn't help ourselves but start trying different variations to see which one would fire an emotion. And one of the the best ones I thought was the Cat Stevens track. And I remember hearing that so many times from my dad's uh, record player. That music is so evocative to me. And Mm. obviously, if you remember it from your father, it's just there's such iconic tracks, but they so work with what you're watching and the Dylan one especially, which was in the script, just works so well. 
where you just feel the anger and it just feels like what's inside her head is what Dylan is speaking to at this point. Exactly. And, and that, again, was one of our favorite things when we were screening for an audience, whenever those moments came on and I was like, man, this just, in my mind, is working so well. Hope the audience agree. <laughs> yeah, no, it was powerful seeing her standing there looking at the walls of her apartment, the yeah. writing on the walls, and just the look on her face. It had a lot of impact. Yeah. And then to have that with the Joni Mitchell, which is so different. It's such a celebration. Yeah. And seeing her dance and just full of life. And then I love how you guys go from playing it full to then futzing it when it's in her apartment. You know, and then she's humming to it. It was pretty cool. <laughs> I liked all of that. It's a great integration. It doesn't just feel like we're needle dropping for no point. It's like they're mm. very, very precisely picked. I mean, the great thing about the Cat Stevens, and I don't know if it was in the script or not, is that that song always feels so soothing. And that scene is so charged with energy and tension. And I love how intense you guys played the pounding on the door it's like made me jump every time the door was being broken down i love how then you have hillary just sitting waiting on the chair with her suitcase <laughs> that was a great scene and all of that took a long time to get to the sound became a very big player in it while we were editing and and turning you know the music up to sort of get inside her head just as the door opens. It was all just a really precisely tailored scene and really minutely we delved into that, like to every possible component to that scene was really, really worked. The great thing is it worked from the get-go and it just got incrementally better. And what's nice, it's like people aren't getting shot, it's not snipers firing through windows it's just social services and a couple of bobbies knocking in <laughs> all the nice lady yeah I mean, you, you expect that there's going to be a whole army outside the door exactly a whole load of guys and dogs and... <laughs> but that's the thing that i also really enjoyed about the film is that it's not it doesn't have to get that big to be really powerful it's also just nice to work on a film like that that transports you to a different time and place which i love a slice of life a slice of life and it's just so accessible to all of us it's funny i was talking to someone in fact it was well i think we were on the dub stage and i said you know does anyone not know anyone who's had some form of mental distress or mental problem and to my shock not a single person didn't know someone personally or quite close to them who'd had some form of mental breakdown or trauma. It's true. It's everywhere in society. And yet sometimes you just don't think about it. You try to ignore it. You try to shove it under the rug. Yeah. You just completely sort of go, oh, I think they're just a little bit weird. And it's like, no, they're actually struggling quite badly. And what I also loved is just the humanity of Stephen. Well, I love when he's walking past Hillary when she's staring off into the ocean and uh, he decides that he's going to go back and talk to her. 
And again, awkward. It's like he's there with his new girlfriend. Very awkward. A young girl, and he still goes up and has a conversation, and he just cares for her deeply. Well, also, it's a tricky thing because you've got an older woman and a very good-looking younger man, and you have to buy that they would have this relationship, and you do. Talk to me about that and whether you guys were concerned about whether the audience would go on that journey. Well, it's that's what made the film unique and interesting, is that it wasn't just a couple that you would think would get together anyway. They had every reason to not get together, which that was a hurdle that I think lifted the film from being a, just a different film. Mm. So in my mind, it was a risk, but I think it was a risk worth taking. Absolutely. And the film resonates from that particular scene because, yeah, for everyone, you know, you could say, well, it's uncomfortable. There's a thousand reasons to not do it like that. But that's the point of making a film is take risks and go large. And we did. Yeah. I mean, you can't go more risky than 1917. <laughs> no, no, damn, that was risky. Trust me. I, I don't think sweated so much when we were shooting a film. I love that film. I just loved it. That was a crazy experience of like high tension and high, just high risk. It was a really risky endeavor because it could have been crap. It could have not worked. (laughs) You know, everybody was nervous. It it works. Again, great actors, solid script, great director, great cinematographer, you know, pretty reasonable editor. Uh, it's just, <laughs> you put it all together and you've at least got a leg up to get somewhere. But honestly, films are a risky business. There's no two ways about it. But I've enjoyed working on a lot of risky adventures and a lot of them have really landed well. So, you know, it's a lot of fun. That's great. One scene I wanted to talk to you about is when the white supremacists are having their parade and they come and destroy the theater. That scene was so intense. And I love what you guys were doing both with the cutting and the sound and how you were sort of muting the dialogue and and just the sound design and the music were just working in concert so well. We did the sketch of how that would work while I was cutting to get into the theory of how were we going to handle this scene. And it really felt the right thing to do to start to drift the violence away and then pinpoint on what you're actually, because there's a lot of visual information. And if you went Mm -hmm. total mayhem, it would have been just a very different scene. It was like a way of laser focusing you. But at the same time, then we had to then pull back out again to come back into the world. So that was an ongoing game I was playing both on the Avid and in the Temp Mix with our sound team, Oliver Tani and Rachel. Who did a fantastic job. There was such specificity in the sound. I love just the cars passing by and the seagulls. And there's so many wonderful moments of sound yeah. in this. Well, we, we literally designed the sound as we edit. The great thing with Sam is we both have a very acute soundscape sense. We're not identical to each other, but we both augment each other. Mm. 
like all good directors, quite frankly, that I've worked with, acutely interested in sound and what it can do. I know it sounds pedantic, but every single thing that you hear in that movie is has been orchestrated. And 99% of the people would probably think I'm crazy and no one would ever do that. And, and why would you even think that would make a difference? But it makes all the difference. Everything works in concert with the score. Every sound effect is developed. Every background is developed. It's an acutely intricate soundscape. And I've worked on, you know, big action blockbusters. And I can tell you they're both hard, but people do underestimate what you would consider to be a simpler soundscape, but it really isn't. It's a real labor of love. And we took a lot of time to get that right. Yeah, I mean, just hearing the cars pass, you have this desperation on her face and you just feel life is like driving by her. Yeah, it's all there for purpose. And it's great that you feel that and you can articulate it. And I don't mind when people can't. It doesn't matter because it's still, you feel it. But clearly, when you have people who watch it with a lot more filmmaking knowledge, it is interesting what they call out to me. And I go, wow, you really were paying attention. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I really loved the film. I thought you did a fantastic job. I'm really pleased that you loved it, and so did I. I think you've never met a group of people more vested in a project. Yeah, we're very pleased with the result. So, If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. There's a little flaw in your optic nerve. So if I run the film at 24 frames per second... It creates an illusion of motion. An illusion of life. So you don't see the darkness. And nothing happens without light.